Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Hey, oboists! Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. I'm fully vaccinated now. I know you have been for a while. Yep. And yesterday, for the first time in a year and a half, I ate in a restaurant. <gasps> Inside? Inside, yes. Me and everyone in my party was fully vaccinated. How did it feel? It felt very interesting um, because it was like normal, like oh, this is, you know, how I've done it my entire life, except for the last year and a half. But it was also like, I feel like I'm doing something naughty or like, <laughs> like reminding myself like, okay, this is okay. And um, <laughs> it was fun. Um, I had the experience last week of going out with some friends, like to an outdoor patio for a happy hour. And it was, it felt so intense. Yeah. Like just making real eye contact with real people. Yeah. Felt really <laughs> like, oh, wow. Did I used to do this all the time? <laughs> do you know what was the funnest thing is we went to a Mexican restaurant and we've done our fair share of takeout, quarantine takeout. Sure. But when you do takeout, you don't get the chips that they bring <gasps> to the table that you're just like, I'm nomming on these <laughs> chips. Like, you know, the warm chips, they just keep coming no matter how yes. much you eat. I was like, oh my gosh, chips. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was so joyful. Yeah, joyful is a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah, it was like very intense and also like very joyful. And we were there for a really long time. It's like we were all just like 
craving human interaction. Mm-hmm. And then there we were. And then it was like we couldn't break the spell. Yes. Yes. Super exciting. And like, obviously, we're necessary. We'll continue to observe restrictions and be responsible. But easing back into things that were previously not an option is like a wild feeling, but a great <laughs> And uh, we're also both on summer break right now. Mm-hmm. So do you have any like fun things coming up or what are you looking forward to right now? I'm sorry. There's a gar- the garbage truck is like coming by. Oh, I can't oh, hear it. They're gone oh, wait, yes, now. I can. Yes, I can. They're gone now. <laughs> pardon, pardon me. Just a little real life. <laughs> um, yeah, well, part of my post academic year COVID summer plan was to take a nap every single day. And I am achieving this goal. I have taken a one to two hour nap every single day. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I feel very good about it. (laughs) Now, Do you wake up refreshed? Like sometimes I take a nap and I wake up groggy and it feels like I'm worse than before I took the nap. Oh, a thousand percent. <laughs> I wake up in such a bad mood. <laughs> so, okay, well, uh, don't know how to respond, but I'm maybe glad for you. Um, best wishes to Becky or the dogs. I wake up so grumpy. <laughs> And it takes me like 30 minutes to an hour to acclimate to being awake. (laughs) (laughs) But I still do it every day. Are you going to travel or anything? We're going to go see our families for the first time in such a long time. Yeah. This summer. It's crazy. Um, And I'm going to get a 10-year tattoo. Did I tell you that? No. Yeah, I have an appointment. That's oh wait yes you did the blackberries yeah yes I'm get it right there uh, so I've got my appointment booked for that feeling adventurous uh, and I'm going to record with this awesome quintet that I've been working with out of Oxford, Mississippi. So we have another rehearsal weekend lined up and then a uh, recording week lined up. So that's really exciting. That's something that I've wanted to do for a while is do some professional recordings. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's really cool. Uh, And then brainstorming some new recital themes and, you know, creative activity ideas for the next academic year because it's like it counts again so (laughs) you got over the first hurdle and now you're uh going toward the second hurdle yeah well not even just for tenure just like COVID kind of stopped everything in my mind it was just like get through it get through it get through it Mm -hmm. get the students through it we gotta get it we gotta all get through this it was like it was like a crisis management mode for right. an academic year. And then mm-hmm. now it's like, oh, it's going to feel somewhat normal again. So I can put my energy into something more creative and it's going to be, it's going to be cool. I'm excited. Yeah. What are you doing? Cool. What are you doing this summer? Well, kind of similar. Um, the big thing is the summer program that I teach at LSM is happening. We are going to have so cool. an in-person experience. And I know many of the listeners and you included 
uh, had some face-to-face -face element mm -hmm. this year, um, but WSU has been entirely virtual. It's going to feel so crazy to teach in person. Yeah, there are a couple of colleagues who did in-person exceptions. Um, my classes didn't require that. So I literally have not made music in person with anyone except Chris in the room in a year and a half. So I have not taught in person. I have not collaborated, rehearsed, done anything. And I'm, uh, like many of us, very ready and very excited. So when we found out that we we're going to be in person for that, uh, so I'll move to Indiana for a month and, uh, that's kind of obviously a big chunk of my summer. Yeah. But in addition to that, my big kind of brainstorming, as you put it, I'm planning to spend and have spent the last week in uh, reflective time. Mm -hmm. I set aside about an hour a day, this pandemic and a lot of the events, you know, that happened over the past year have kind of kicked ideas that were already ruminating in my brain into high gear. And there are some, uh, how can I put it without being a bummer? I'm super excited about the bassoon as a tool, like mm -hmm. with which to amplify ideas and, and voices and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, but I have some questions about how I'm to go forward as a musician and as a quote unquote professor. Um, that I really want to be answered before I continue on in my career. That's so healthy. Yeah, certain certain questions about like, I guess, purpose and mm -hmm. function mm -hmm. um, and service and approach and some big ideas that I kind of never questioned. I just kind of marched forward, tried to climb, marched forward, tried to climb. And for the first time, I'm kind of zooming out and- What is all it for? Yes, asking some big why questions. Mm -hmm. And I believe in what we do. I believe there are answers to those questions, I but agree. my priority is finding them before mm -hmm. doing anything else. I'm kind of in this place where I'm like, well, I can't decide what I'm to program until I answer this question. Well, I can't really strategize mm -hmm. effective recruitment until I answer these questions. Mm -hmm. And um, until I really figure out one of my priorities is contemplating the idea of relevance. And mm -hmm. so um, I've been spending time, I have a bibliography I've created, a uh, mm -hmm. reading list. You know, there, that's the good part about easing back into everything is my summer is not jam packed to the brim to where mm -hmm. I can't take some time for myself to just kind of marinate in some stuff. Yeah, that sounds like a perfect use of the summer. Dare I say more productive than napping every day? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we're both like, whoa, I need to recharge. I think that's essentially yeah. what it is. We're both yeah. being like, oh, there needs to be a resettling, recharging before we- And you're like- Jump in I'm going to answer some deep universal questions. And I'm like, I'm going to be unconscious for three months. I mean, type one Enneagram, type six Enneagram. <laughs> K 
Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Janet Ingle loves the oboe. She has built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Janet doesn't just do reads either. Look at JanetIngle.com for a selection of read cases, swabs, and tools, or for read making videos, classes, and boot camps. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH for 10% off their first order at JanetIngle.com. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Mary Lynch, Principal Oboist of the Seattle Symphony Orchestra. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. We love to get to know our guests by finding out how they started to play their instruments. So could you talk to us about how you began to play the oboe? Sure. Um, so I uh, joined my school band program in fourth grade, um, but I started on the clarinet. Um, although I, I did actually start with the intention to switch to the oboe. Um, I remember uh, hearing our band teacher demonstrate all the instruments. And the two instruments that he did not have with him were the French horn and the oboe. And so he just said, I need kids who are up for a challenge to play these instruments because they're really hard and, um, and not too many people actually play them. So we need people to play them. And I thought that was a great idea. Um, you know, I wanted to play the hard one. So <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but classic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he suggested I start on clarinet, which I did. And I ended up really liking it, being pretty good at it pretty quickly. So I played clarinet for four years before finally switching to the oboe. What happened once you finally switched to the oboe? What made you want to pursue it um, in college and then as your career? I think, um, so my first thought about music as a career was when I was in sixth grade, I became obsessed with the music of John Williams. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought I wanted to be a composer and my parents got me a little you know, like 50 key electronic keyboard. And so I would like plunk along, make up stuff. Um, then when I first thought of playing the oboe professionally, um, I think it was my second year of playing, I joined the DC Youth Orchestra program um, in Washington, DC. And that was my first time playing an orchestra. And I just absolutely adored it. Um, I really dove into it. Um, like I would stay up late with my parts on my bed and my little CD player listening to Scheherazade or Brahms three or whatever piece we were playing. And I would just like memorize the music. 
Um, but yeah, I, I think it was probably um, ninth or 10th grade when I started getting more serious. And what did that look like, getting more serious? I think, well, so part of it was I, I started to get a little more competitive with it. Like I wanted to, you know, get into the fancy youth orchestra. I wanted to go do summer camps. Um, and I had a really wonderful private teacher um, who started me off on oboe. Her name's Teresa Trigiani. Um, she's based in Maryland. And she studied with Cindy Delmeda at Carnegie Mellon. Um, so she was really familiar with like that world. And, and I think she, she would sort of guide me towards certain people. Like um, when I bought my first oboe with, with my parents, she sent us to John Simer. So mm -hmm. I was exposed to John Simer. And then of course he always has all these great stories to tell and anecdotes to share. And, um, yeah, I just started getting sucked into that world <laughs> and loving I love it. it. I love it. And you went to the Interlochen Arts Academy, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my, um, let's see, it was the summer after my sophomore year of high school. Um, I was at a summer music program and the oboe teacher there, Anna Maddox, suggested that I audition for Interlochen. Um, and she sort of talked my parents into it and <laughs> I'm very grateful for that. Um, so I, I went up with my parents that summer and met Mr. Stolper and um, had a lesson, loved it, loved the outdoorsy campus. And thankfully he took me and my parents let me go. <laughs> I would anticipate that that would kind of set you on a trajectory of like, um, you know, really serious focus on the oboe. And so I wonder if you could kind of walk us through your training and educational journey, um, commenting on like what those experiences were like for you. Sure. Um, so let's see. So I went to Interlochen for my last two years of high school. That's really when I became very serious about the oboe. That's when I knew I want to be principal oboe of an orchestra one day. And that's when I was also exposed to kids who were like way better than I was. <laughs> I, I was, um, you know, one of 10, nine or 10 oboe players in the class and everybody could play. And there were some really incredible players. Um, in my interlocking class. Um, so I, I jumped right in, like I loved having all that time to practice. Like I, I'd practice five hours a day and just be like thrilled about it. <laughs> Which, um, yeah, I guess that, that says something like there has to be that kind of love and drive um, mm -hmm. to, to pursue something as demanding as the oboe. Um, then from there, I went to the New England Conservatory for my undergrad and studied with John Ferrillo, um, which was really wonderful. Um, my, my memories of NEC mostly 
center around playing Barrett in lessons mm -hmm. <laughs> and listening to John Ferullo sing through the Barrett melodies. He, he very rarely would play in lessons. Like when he did, it was this huge treat and I, I just like soaked it up, but he sang at every lesson. And so I, I feel like I learned how to play music just by listening to the way he would sing something and, and articulate things with his voice. Um, another really fond memory of NEC that has stuck with me is hearing the BSO play every week. Mm -hmm. I, I used to work as an usher at Symphony Hall in Boston. So I heard those shows multiple times every week for like a couple of years. Um, so I, I learned so much that made a huge impression on me to hear that great orchestra. Mm -hmm. um, then from there, I went to Juilliard for my master's degree and studied with Elaine Duvass and Nathan Hughes. Um, that was a, a, an amazing learning environment there. I, I feel like I, those were like the two most productive years of my life. <laughs> I worked so hard. Um, you know, we had three hour oboe classes every Monday night. Um, sometimes they go longer than that even. Um, and the, the oboe faculty there just so genuinely loves to teach. Um, and they seem, particularly Miss Duvoss, seems like she's just tireless. Like mm -hmm. she, she could teach forever and still have inspiring things to say. So yeah, then I, I was lucky, very, very lucky to win my first job while I was still in school. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so my first job was playing second oboe in the Cleveland Orchestra. Um, and of course, I, I never expected, I never expected to play in the Cleveland Orchestra period, <laughs> I don't know, let alone win an audition for an actual position. Um, so when that happened, I was like completely shocked and over the moon. I, I remember, um, I didn't even bring a snack that day because I figured I wouldn't make it out of the prelims. So I was like starving. And um, I remember <laughs> my friend, Jen Kristen, who's such a lovely person. She, she gave me some of her nuts that she had because I was so hungry. Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I remember after we played the final round, the personnel manager came backstage and you know, announced we, the committee has chosen a winner and that person is Mary Lynch. And I screamed at her. I screamed, what? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and yeah, I remember that moment, like just being whisked away to, to meet people. And <laughs> I was like, totally shocked. <laughs> so was was that your first audition that you've taken or was that? Oh, God, no. Oh. Oh. <laughs> that, no, no. I that think, would be so epic. <laughs> that, that would be epic. Um, was not that lucky. <laughs> um, I believe Cleveland was number 17. Wow. I started pretty young. Um, That's awesome. My, yeah, I started taking auditions. I think it was my sophomore year. Yeah, it was my sophomore year of college. So it was before I was really ready for a job, but um, Mr. Ferrillo urged me to start at that age. So I did. <laughs> Sometimes our guests talk about 
the advantages of the fearlessness of youth in taking auditions. <laughs> and I wonder if that's something that you have experienced also. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had. I was, I was a nervous audition taker. Yeah. I mean, I still am. Like, I, I get nervous when I have to play in front of people. I get really nervous when I have to record. That's yeah. like a major mental battle for me um but yeah I the first few auditions I took I felt horrible like I was just a total nervous mess were you like I hate this I hate this I hate this I hate this <laughs> yeah well like I remember you know like physically shaking yeah. and, and just feeling like I could barely get through a passage because I didn't take a, take a deep enough breath or um yeah it's those audition nerves for me, they were like really unique to auditions. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> um, I, I would get so much more nervous for that. But, but since then, of course, I've, I figured out ways around that and, and it's gotten a lot better. Um, I think particularly with experience, just being able to walk in and, and really know the excerpts, um, by now I've, I've played most of them. So, um, so it's pretty different taking an audition now versus like 10 years ago. Had your um, audition mentality mindset evolved by the time you had taken that Cleveland audition? I think, um, so when I first started taking auditions, I took them knowing I wasn't really ready. It was more of like, just the experience, just for practice. Um, and thankfully, most of those auditions that I took early on were, were pretty close to Boston. So it wasn't like I was flying across the country and all over the place. Um, yeah, but by, by the time Cleveland came around, I was ready and I knew it. Like, I, I remember being at Juilliard and having like some audition coachings with Nathan Hughes and he just has a great mind for that stuff that the way that he thinks about auditions how to prepare for them like how to just sort of deal with them mentally um, was really helpful for me like he really tried to hammer it into our heads that the person who wins the audition is the person who plays the best on that day like don't give yourself the excuse of I don't know of like I could play really well and still not get it because it's a total crapshoot like he tried to convince us that it wasn't a total crapshoot and and if you really do well like you have you have a shot and i think approaching it that way like feeling as though i i could take responsibility and feel like authority about what i was presenting um was really important for me could we hear about your experience auditioning for and winning your current position in the Seattle Symphony West Coast Best Coast. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> um but I'm especially interested in not a oboist. Maybe this is a dumb question. Tell me if it is. But you were playing second oboe and if preparing for a principal oboe audition you were having to kind of wear two hats or if you know, that balance and, and how you approach that. I'd love to hear about, yeah, your preparation and, and that day. Yeah, that's a really good question. People ask me that a lot. Like, 
the difference between playing first and second and what I had to change or do differently. Um, in terms of preparing for that audition while I had the job in Cleveland, I'd say it didn't strike me as like having to wear two hats or anything like that. I think playing first oboe and second oboe isn't really that different in terms of you're playing music and it's your job to do what the music asks of you, right? Like it's your job to interpret and, and deliver what's appropriate for your part in relation to other parts. Um, so that basic approach is totally the same either way. It's just being a musician, right? Um, so yeah, I think the, the preparation process, um, it was very different from preparing for an audition while I was still in school. One of the things that was better was I had access to Severance Hall, so <laughs> I could just go play mock auditions on the Severance right. Hall stage, which I did a couple times. Um, I also was really grateful. I remember right before I went to Seattle, um, I played the list through for Rob Walters, um, who just, he's an incredible musician and, and so articulate and insightful, like with the way that he speaks and um, he, he had some really wonderful coachings for me. Um, so that, that was really helpful and, and so, so lovely that that section was supportive of me, um, you know, pursuing something that I was passionate about. Um, yeah, my, my audition story though that day was kind of epic <laughs> because the Cleveland Orchestra was on tour in Miami um, and the only way I could sandwich in that audition was I had to get up at like three o'clock in the morning, take a 4.30 a.m. flight or something like that out of Miami, flew then to Houston, transferred and then flew to Seattle. Landed in Seattle. Two hours later, I played my first round. <laughs> so what? It was almost like I didn't have time to be stressed or nervous about it because <laughs> I was just exhausted. Um. <laughs> and your reads wouldn't have had time to change either. No, I I wonder. I, I don't really know anything about <laughs> how that actually works, but I wonder if maybe that was it because they didn't feel that different. Maybe they just like didn't have time. <laughs> <laughs> so that's you the shocked you gotta, them into staying yeah. put. Yeah. Yeah. You got to just get there two hours before your audition and not even think about it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And then the finals were the next day. And then I had a service in Cleveland the following morning. So I took a red eye. <laughs> back to Cleveland. So yeah, that, that was a busy weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to ask you about winning that Cleveland job right out of your master's degree. Um, it's, it was probably such a dream come true. And then, so you win, you scream, you meet all the people, and then you have to do the job. And I would love to hear more about your journey into, you know, professional musician adulthood, I guess, in a major, major orchestra. That's such a great question. Um, because it really is, it is like a journey into musical adulthood. 
Um, and it's one I'm still on, you know, it's like that musical journey of becoming never really stops. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think when I was in Cleveland, I was still very much in the student mindset. Um, I, I felt pretty unsure of myself and definitely felt out of my element. Um, like, I, I think I had imposter syndrome, but that's something that I've struggled with over the years and, and more recently um, have made my peace with. Um, but I think it was more in Seattle. That's that's where I feel like, like in Cleveland, I was like still a teenager, so to speak. And um, after my first few years in Seattle, I, I really started to feel like there was teeth to what I was doing. Oh, I love that. That feeling of self-assuredness. Is that something that came with time or was that something that you had to actively develop? It probably would have come faster if I had tried to actively develop. (laughs) Um, I mean, it it was a little of both. Um, A lot of it came with experience, like also just being asked to play guest principal in in these great orchestras. Like like the first time I did something like that was in the Chicago Symphony, um, I believe in 2016, it was a little while ago. Um, And I, I felt like a kid in a candy shop. Like I was at the same time, like wide eyed at at like just what that was and what it meant for me. Um, But also kind of feeling, you know, that imposter syndrome, like, am I going to do this? Okay. Or, or, you know, like, am I going to live up to whatever expectation? Um, And after doing that, in in a number of different orchestras over the years and and having it be a really positive experience um, that I think helped me feel a little bit more like like I could feel confident in what I was doing and um, authoritative with what I was doing. So you're in Seattle, you win this awesome job in this awesome orchestra, and you're also teaching at the University of Washington. So mm-hmm. I'd love to hear more about you as a teacher. What, um, what do you value? What is really important to you in your pedagogy that your students take away from their time with you? Um, I, I mean, I love teaching. I'm, I was so thrilled when UW asked me to come on faculty after my first year in Seattle because I knew that was something I really wanted to be a part of my musical life to be teaching at um, a college or university. Um, My big things that I stress with all of my students um, is fundamentals, (laughs) Um, scales, long tones, you know, the the physicality of playing and trying to find a way that's like most efficient for each student, you know, cause every, everybody's a little bit different and the way one person holds the reed isn't going to look exactly the same as the way another person is going to hold the reed. Um, so exploring that and, and trying to find like the right recipe for sound production is something that I'm really big on and, and it's, you know, tailored to each individual student. Um, the other thing that I do with 
pretty much every student, unless they, you know, come to me and just say, I, I want to do excerpts and just coach me on excerpts, is um, Barrett. So all of my students at UW who are undergrads go through the, the Barrett book. Um, and I, I really tried to impart what was given to me um, by my teacher. And so I, I talk a lot about phrasing and line and tone development and working with long tones in relation to the Barrett etudes. Um, I also talk a lot about atmosphere and, and trying to create a scene on stage. So my students are very used to me asking the question, like, what's happening here? <laughs> like, tell me what's, what's in your mind, what's happening on stage, questions like that. Speaking of students, we have many student listeners. And one thing they're always interested in when we have guests from uh, who are orchestral players is that experience or knowledge and perspective gained on the other side of the screen and what you've learned about auditions from assessing auditions and maybe like what advice you have as someone who has been on committees and that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is interesting when you finally get to the other side. Um, I've lost count of how many auditions I've listened to at this point and a wide variety of, in of instruments as well. Mm -hmm. um, the things that come to mind when I'm thinking of somebody who, when they play, I think like, yes, like they just nail it. Um, a followable sense of pulse is really important. Um, not a metronomic sense of pulse, but something that is followable. Um, a beautiful sound, of course, um, and playing in tune with yourself is really important. Um, perfection is not important to me. And in my experience on both sides of the screen, um, I think perfection is in the sense of like note perfection um, and also like perfection of expression. I think it's an impossible goal. <laughs> um, and, and I find that, you know, if I'm listening to somebody with that expectation, it's totally unfair. And if I'm playing with that expectation of myself, I usually end up playing worse because then I get more nervous and, and I'm not at ease and like forgiving <laughs> of myself if something does go wrong. Um, I've won two auditions and gotten very, very close in several others. All of those auditions, I made embarrassing mistakes. <laughs> like, I'm talking about like <laughs> in the um, final round for the Seattle audition, it started with the cadenza from the Strauss concerto, that the one that precedes the third movement. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, the and so the up to the high F and then down to the A and, and you sort of end triumphantly on the A and um, it's very dramatic when you go up to the high F. So I, it was going really well, and I went for that high F, and it just cracked. Like it, it came out. You know that horrible sound that happens. When <laughs> you're high, no, it yeah. 
But I was going for it. I, I just sustained. Yes. <laughs> sustained that awful noise and kept going. Um, I love I, that commitment. I love it. I guess it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually, you know, I remember um, Ludovic Morlow, who was the music director who hired me, um, when he met me after the audition, he told me, he appreciated um, that it wasn't like this perfect audition because he he said it, it meant that you're willing to take risks. And so I think, yeah, try to try to get that out of your head. Like perfection is not the goal. Um, doing doing yourself justice is the goal in an audition. Ooh, I love that. Yeah, I have been having a lot of conversations with my own students lately about how perfectionism is poison and mm -hmm. and it can actually derail you. It can derail your career if mm -hmm. if you don't treat it. It's it feels like an illness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's something I really have to monitor with myself. Like when I start to feel that kind of crippling self doubt or, or like performance anxiety it's usually because I have perfection as my expectation. I think that's why recording is, is like particularly difficult for me from the mental game perspective, because when you listen to a recording, it's basically perfect, <laughs> you know, but that's because people can, they, they edit recordings, right? It's, it's not really representative of how somebody plays live. Um, and, and I think sometimes I forget that so it, it's good to remind uh, remind yourself like perfection's kind of an enemy sometimes <laughs> yeah yeah well along those lines and and talking about mentally preparing to do something how does one go about preparing to play a double concerto with Itzhak Perlman and can you talk to us about that experience again both in the preparation and in the execution sure I mean, that was like one of the coolest things I've ever done. <laughs> um, that was so exciting for me. And I definitely felt like starstruck <laughs> getting to do that. Um, yeah, when I was preparing, I so I, I can get kind of <laughs> unreasonably picky about Bach. <laughs> I, Bach holds a really special place in my heart and I have such a specific sound in mind and approach in mind when I play it. And so I, I was nervous that like my pickiness would get in the way of me being able to, to kind of go with the flow. Cause when you're playing with Itzhak Perlman, like you're going to match Itzhak Perlman. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, in Excuse me, sir, can you change <laughs> yeah. your phrasing to match me, please? <laughs> yeah. The phrasing you've been doing for the past 50 years. So eloquently. Yeah. So I listened to a lot of his recordings and just like tried to get his sound and approach in my head. Um, what was really interesting for me was um, to get to play Bach with like this sort of old school Bach style player. Like now I think when we play Baroque music, it's much more historically informed and modern instrumentalists tend to try to imitate the sounds of a Baroque instrument. Um, but I think Bach, you know, in, in like 
the 50s, 60s, 70s was played sort of more like Brahms. Like it was a very different approach. Um, so I tried to embrace that. And um, I, I had a wonderful time playing with him. He was like such a pleasure to work with, was constantly cracking jokes and, and just made me feel so comfortable. He's a wonderful human. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I, I remember, I'll share one last anecdote. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember playing the second movement with him in particular. Like, it was this really profound moment. Like, you know, those moments where you're on stage and you just feel so present and mm-hmm. almost like somebody had a dial in your head and they were able to turn up your ability to listen by 50%. Like, that's how present you are. That that is what I felt playing that second movement with him because I think we were just both so attuned to each other's sound and, and phrasing. And I'll never forget that performance. That's amazing. Talk to us more about your recording. You have uh, alluded to that being something of a, of like a brain block. <laughs> and I would love to hear more about how you've, you know, dealt with the recording process and you have, you know, recorded concertos. And I would just love to hear more about that. Sure. Um, yeah. So my list of recordings seems to be growing. <laughs> um, I'm slated to do another, uh, another one of Christopher Nichols music, but more of his like um, chamber music for oboe and sonatas and stuff coming up. Um, and I recorded a couple of his concertos uh, a few years ago, and then the Dabuthi concerto a few years ago. So yeah, each each time I make a recording, I feel like I get a little bit more comfortable and a little bit better at it. The first recording I did, um, you know, major recording would be the Dutia um, my French is terrible. <laughs> Don't make me say French, Emma. Anyway. Don't make me say that again. Sorry, all native speakers. Yeah, we do have them, but yeah. Sorry. But you know what piece I'm talking about? um yeah so that that was the first time I recorded something where it felt like a really big deal to me um and I was so nervous that's a hard one too yeah I mean it's tricky like it's really challenging technically um also how the parts play off of each other is really tricky like it, it takes a while you know, there isn't like this reliable sense of pulse. It can, it's a tricky piece to put together. And we only had, we didn't have any rehearsals. We only had the two recording sessions scheduled. So I went into that, like with all the parts memorized and like ultra prepared because I did not want to be the reason that we had to do something again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and when you're recording with colleagues, that's really how it feels. <laughs> um, you don't want to be, um, that person who's mm-hmm. like, oops, can we do that again? Um, yeah, I think one thing that I've learned about recording is I can really, I can let myself relax and just play as I would play if the microphone wasn't there. Um, 
you know, when you have a microphone and you're an oboist and it's like right in front of your face, mm -hmm. I think the tendency is to, at least for me, is to play a lot less mm. um, and to be a little bit like to downplay things. To play um, more conservatively. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the idea of like playing a fortissimo, you know, tutti tone into a microphone that's right in front of me is like, oh no. <laughs> I feel so exposed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I've learned like, oh no, like I can, I can just play as I would play. And if anything, I'm slowly getting better at feeling like I can take more risks when I record because you can do it again, you know, depending on the setting. Um, I'd say when you're recording chamber music, it's a little bit different, but if it's just oboe alone um, or oboe and piano, there's a little bit more room to, um, to take risks and, and to also try things like you could do. I did this um, several times in the Dabovi and also the, the nickel concertos where I would record a passage two different ways and decide later, which one I liked. <laughs> oh, I like that. Um, you know, like if I couldn't decide exactly how I wanted to play something musically, where I wanted a phrase to go, if I wanted a certain dynamic somewhere, I would just record my options and then <laughs> pick later. This is a question I've been told is unfair, but I like asking it. It's a <laughs> hypothetical in which the Seattle Symphony music director comes to you and says, Mary, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. You get to program one of the concerts on the upcoming season, anything you want. What would be the program of that evening in your dream concert? Um, well, if that really happened right now, I would say Florence Price Symphony Number no. 1. Ooh. It has a gorgeous oboe part, and I, I really think it's important to be programming works by Black composers. Um, I would also include, I've enjoyed getting to know the music of Ruth Gipps. Um, she's also written some symphonies that I like, and the number... I can't remember if it's, you know, Symphony 2 or 4 or whatever, but they're there's a particular symphony that I would be, <laughs> um, I would want to, to look up and program on that concert as well. So you already shared with us one beautiful memory of a past performance. And we love to ask, you know, what's a favorite memory of a past performance? And um, if there is maybe a funny memory that you would be willing to share with us, maybe something that happened that was funny or embarrassing or, you know, anything to make us feel like less perfectionistic <laughs> in our goals. Oh, I have several of those stories. <laughs> <laughs> One really incredible um, musical experience was getting to play Bruckner's Fourth Symphony in the St. Florian Abbey um, in Austria, which was where Bruckner worked, and that's where he um, his music was performed when it was first written. Um, that, that was made into a recording, um, and that was actually like one of the very first things I played when I was in Cleveland. Um, so I was very... Um, very green and nervous, but excited. And I knew that second oboe part 
backwards and forwards. <laughs> I remember there were even a couple of second oboe solos. So like, I really enjoyed that. Um, and the acoustic of that space and getting to hear his music in that space was something I'll never forget. It was like suddenly Bruckner made sense. <laughs> All of those really long held notes and long lines and, and the texture of Bruckner made so much more sense in that acoustic, which was very boomy, but also really lively. Like it, it wasn't like a bathtub kind of dank boomy. It was like this beautiful effervescent heavenly kind of boomy. Mm. Yeah. And then funny stories. Um, I, you know, something I've done on occasion <laughs> um, at orchestra is I will, okay, it's happened like twice, but it was very funny both times it happened. I had my finger on, well, one time I had my finger on the second octave key when it was not a second octave keynote. Um, and it was in Tombow, this was just a rehearsal, um, but we were rehearsing Tombow several years ago. We got to the middle part of the Rigadon movement. You know, you start on the G and I, I had the octave key down, and so it came out like this really awkward sounding <laughs> high G because, you know, the air you use to play an octave key note is totally different from the air that you use to play a, a lower octave note. So everybody, like, I just I just kind of stopped because I was stunned at the sound that came out of the oboe, and, and everybody <laughs> had a chuckle. <laughs> <laughs> Did you kind of take the oboe out of your face and like look at the reed? Like, hmm, maybe it's yeah, the reed. Yeah, I just well, had this moment where I was just like, ah, oh, sorry. <laughs> and, you know, everybody kind of laughed and we started again. <laughs> Excuse me, I just had an out of body experience. Yeah. I'm here now. <laughs> it's like a brain fart experience. <laughs> That's amazing. That, that happens on occasion. <laughs> What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? You know, I saw that question on your question sheet and I was like, oh man, how am I going <laughs> to answer that? It's another unfair question. I think it's good to be really introspective about what music means to you and what kind of drive you feel to pursue it. Um, I think not to be Debbie Downer, but a lot of young players don't realize how much work it takes to get um, to, to establish yourself with a career in music. Um, you know, it, it, I practiced so much, so many hours by myself in a practice room. Um, and, and, you know, I think if you really want to do this, you have to like live and breathe music. Like it has to be running through your head throughout the day. Like it, it really has to be a part of, like a huge part of your life, not just something that you turn on sometimes or you turn on for a few hours a day and then you go and kind of do whatever and you don't think about it. So I think just being introspective about that, asking yourself some tough questions, like what am I willing to do to, um, to pursue music? What... Like, am I willing to dedicate, you know, like three to four hours of practicing plus another two to three hours of read making every day for years? Um, do I have that kind of stamina for it? Do I have that kind of appetite 
for it? Um, I think those are really good questions to ask yourself honestly. And it can be kind of hard to do that. Like it takes courage to ask yourself those questions, but it's, it's really worth thinking about. And sometimes the answer might be, no, I'm not willing to do that. Right. And, but the thing is like, whatever the answer is, it's good knowledge for you. Like it's, it's a win because then, you know, like, you know, what's important to you. So um, that's probably good life advice in general, like outside of music, just being introspective and asking yourself questions about what is important to you for your life. What makes you feel most alive? Mary, this was such a wonderful conversation. We're so grateful that you were willing to spend an hour with us on Double Read Dish. Oh, it was a pleasure. You guys are great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Can we put that on our website? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode. Please support us by liking, following us, rating, reviewing on iTunes, sending sending <laughs> us good vibes. Anything you can do, we're you know very grateful, uh, very very grateful. How <laughs> who's the next guest, Kelly? <laughs> next on the podcast, we have a fabulous interview with Tristan Rennie artists, faculty in residence at the University of Northern Colorado and second slash assistant principal bassoon with the Colorado Symphony. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. I need to recover from my nap. Go make reads. <laughs>